Give me a nod yeah, when you're ready. Like Shooter's ready. Stand by. This is going to Sergeant Matt Gunlock with the 3GIQ Podcast. I'm joined here today with Sergeant John Glomba. And in the background is Captain Chris Scott. He's kind of censoring things, making sure we don't say anything inappropriate. You might hear him typing in the background, and he is currently playing with the rifle that he won at a, at a match. Uh, anyways, yep, there he goes, <laughs> playing around. <laughs> Typical officers. Uh, but... Um, I'm here joined, uh, Sergeant John Glomba. He's our head coach for the action shooting team. Um, joined us last summer, uh, and he also spent a summer season with us. Uh, why don't you give us a little background on yourself? Sure thing, Gunny. So, uh, like I said, I'll go with John. Um, I'm from Noonan, Georgia originally, uh, left for the Marine Corps there in August 11, 2014. Went to SOI in 2015 as a machine gunner, and it was a 3.5 in uh, a combined anti-armor team before then and was a platform instructor for the tactics section over at OCS. I got to the team in the summer of 2019 shooting USPSA uh, with the newly founded USPSA pistol team. Um, my first ever exposure to competition shooting before then. Uh, I'd really just plinked around with, you know, home-built guns or Glocks I'd bought as, you know, as soon as I turned 21. So I really have a lot of competition experience or anything uh, close to that realm until I actually met Marines from the shooting team. Um, got on there by shooting the Mick East match when it was still held in the National Capital Region before we separated East and NCR. Uh, medaled out of there and pistol with a bronze medal and got invited to championships. Didn't do really well there, uh, mostly because of uh, some of the disciplines there were something I was incredibly new to. But I was scouted for some of the potential I had with a pistol, and uh, that was where things all kicked off. Much downhill from there, uh, searching USPSA. Didn't do so great, um, but that's how kind of things go. I just was dip, like dipping my feet in the competition world, and I learned a lot. I think Captain Scott and I, on a trip back from uh, one match, we tallied it up in the car, drove to Pennsylvania, and I realized I'd shot about roughly 40,000 rounds of 9 mil over a span of like four months. So um, it was a lot to process at the time. I had some time off in between uh, coming back to the team permanently, and uh, that was where I think I, a lot of stuff kind of clicked finally because I came back to the team and it felt like I was back doing what I knew how to do somehow. And uh, it picked up from there. Started shooting three gun. And I got to say, it's been one of the most eye-opening experiences as far as what you can really push yourself to with three different weapon systems, potentially at once in, uh, at once, in one stage. So, um, And we kind of threw you into the fire as soon as you got to the team because... Like, we literally just went from bullseye pistol, kind of got rid of that, started the action pistol team. Guys from the action pistol team were individuals who were on the action shooting team, and the action shooting team really didn't have a coach. And we knew you had platform instruction time. We, we knew you knew how to handle yourself on a weapon. And we were, we were like, well, 
let's make him the coach. Like he's passionate. He he, yeah. he wants to do this. And I I mean I'll be honest here. At first it was kind of like y- you flopped in a sense, but then well it felt like it. And I mean what mid Atlantic last year <laughs> yeah so yeah it was the last two major matches of the season uh i was i was really just and you know it, it was kind of you, you were still feeling it out yeah like i was I, I was completely new to the sport and while i was having a great time doing it i you know at the end of the day it's still a job and i still have to hold myself to a standard and it it was rocky uh, especially the last two matches of the season it was a uh, mid-atlantic and memorial and i dq'd out of both those for the exact same thing and it was that was like a a pit and it was pretty rough, so I went into the mid-mix season kind of, you know, just resetting my mind. Um, and yeah, I like, mean, I'd say the moment it really clicked for you is you were flying out Advon for Mick Pendleton, and you shot the hardest hell two gun. Yeah, it was uh, well, it was Mick Mick twenty nine Palms Advon with uh, Steph's on Hudson. And That's right. We shot the hardest hell two gun series out there uh, at the new Cobalt Kinetics range, which I I still want to take another trip out there to shoot again, but. That's the side point. Um, yeah, and it was it was interesting because I got to – I don't know why, for some reason, just the addition of shooting the kit division in there, it, it tied with me, like, the relevancy what we were doing with the Mick season at that time, um, you know, trying to tie the combat relevancy and the combat marksmanship aspect to it to a practical shooting competition. Um, things just, like, started making sense, and I went out there, placed second in the armor division out of uh, – I think it was, like, 54-some people, and I think – seventh overall out of a hundred so competitors and it was it was definitely uh when i realized like i actually you know had potential for the multi-gun uh world of shooting and ever since then i've been able to learn a lot more take a lot more back to the mic mix and you know especially for our summer shooters now like i feel like i can actually have the experience to back up um what i coach them on and like develop training plans for them a bit more effectively now that i have the confidence of how i've been performing lately yeah, I mean, it's it's been showing everything that you've done, um, even the way you've been handling these summer shooters. You've taken like a complete systems approach to training, and it's been effective. You know, guys are getting out there, they're shooting, they're placing really well. Um, it, it it's been a great summer. It's been a busy summer, um, and and I I feel like even with the sum, summer winding down our schedule just keeps getting even more packed. Um, We're still going to continue to do, um, you know, one competition a month. Uh, But what we have 10 to 13 September, we're going down to 8th ESB. Um, We have another MTT going down 13 to 16 September with the PMO down at Lejeune. We also have 14 to 17 September. We're, we're going to be working with uh, other units. We have, we're have we going out to Yuma. And we're also uh, we're going to be doing two different MTTs in Yuma. Um, and it's just growing. The schedule uh, continues. Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely a huge fan of the off-tempo, I would say, that we've kind of picked up now. And I, I've, I've talked with uh, Master about this a bit, and that's like one of the biggest things I like about where we're going now as a team is we're still maintaining the flow of competitive shooting, and we're still maintaining our presence out there. But now units are starting to realize that we have something to offer, and that's the biggest thing. And I, I use that to you know talk to the summer shooters a lot too, because these guys at the end of the day we're not just scouting them for their competitive shooting potential and like training these better competitive shooters. 
the end of the day, like, if we're looking at them to be part of members of the team, they got to be good instructors as well. And I think uh, a huge deal that goes into that is just the credibility and experience and confidence you get from competitive shooting is, well, it helps, it compounds your ability as an instructor, like, tenfold. If I can go out to a match, and, you know, I, I may not be any Captain Scott, and, you know, win any rifles or whatnot, and, uh, and take, like, top five, but just knowing that I can come out there and I can shoot competitively and I... I can run a stage proficiently, I can memorize a stage plan, and I'm not going out there and just absolutely flopping, um, that helps me a lot because it tells me that I know in my, in my mind, I know the reasons why and how I'm doing the certain things. I'm going to now go back to the fleet or, you know, one of these units is requesting us, and when I coach them, I teach them, like, you know, the, the drills or the course of art, the methods that we use to uh, utilize these weapon systems. You know, uh, when they ask me the why do you do it this way, or you know, can you explain to me better, like how how it works? You're able to dissect it. I, I can yeah, I can dissect it and I can break it down like. And you could teach it multiple different ways to, exactly. because not everybody is the same and not everybody learns the same way, and you yep. you have that ability from seeing other people do oh. stuff. Oh yeah, and that's one of the that's kind of one of the funniest things. I ended up picking it up uh, over the last make make season was one of the best ways I found to communicate with some of these guys, especially for the block three period instruction we have for weapons and target transitions. Um, Cause a lot of, a lot of people you see in there, like you, they, they try and dry fire, like what the, you tell them like, Oh, we're going to be working on this today. And like on their free time, they try to like test it out and you see really weird stuff. And one of the, the best ways I was able to like kind of clear their mind or clear their confusion because the majority of these, these group of people are they're young Marines, you know, 18, mm-hmm. 21 years old. And what's one thing 18 to 21 year olds love to do is freaking play video games. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought of it uh, one night before we kicked off uh, block three and I started rolling with it. And one of the things I talked about in the class was, you know, playing Call of Duty because everyone knows Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. Everyone at one point in their life has played a Call of Duty game. And I told him like in that game, when you are doing a transition from a primary to secondary, is your character screen bobbing around? Is this like arms dipping up and down or is it a smooth? One gun goes away, another one comes up straight to the face of your of your player. You know? mm-hmm. And seeing people's faces kind of like like it head clicks. nods. Yeah, and it's weird because, you know, no one, you know, realistically, because we always have this idea that, you know, oh, you, you know, video game and real life are incredibly different, you know, and I agree. But in the same, in the same context, you know, competition and combat are two different things. Mm-hmm. But... Finding the relevancy and you know there there there's similarities between both and right. you can relate to both and, and and you can use it as learning points. Right, and you know by no means am I telling a kid to go out there and I want you a three sixty no scope this target, mm-hmm. but I'm telling him you know draw like find the relevancy and find something you can relate to to understand it better. And that's and that's part of like the instructor thing is how do you look down the sights in a video game? Right, you you bring the gun up to your face. Mm-hmm. I, the screen doesn't bob down to the iron sights, and you're starting to look over the gun. You know, the gun comes up to the screen, and you know, Captain Scott's over here laughing. <laughs> now I'm green. <laughs> okay, he's a green. That's. I didn't realize how big of a video game nerd you were until last month, uh, this past oh. month, when we were in oh, yeah. Wisconsin. We went to Mark Yackley's house. And you and Tim Yackley just for like an hour and a half just yep. nerded it out. Oh yeah, I'm a huge proponent for flight sims, com- combat flight sims. For everyone listening, combat flight sims is important. Um, uh, a lot of first person shooters and all that. But I will dabble in some fantasy games, The Witcher Three. For all you out there, uh, if you guys are also just excited for season two of The Witcher, yes. Okay, good. I'll nerd out on that too. Okay, just making sure. Uh, but yeah, and it's it's interesting because there's just. I'm not going to sit here and say, if you are good at Call of Duty, you're good at shooting guns. I, I'm shut the, that, no, we sh- yeah, no, we shut that facet of the conversation down right now. 
But it's a good tool to relate to some of these the younger crowds because a lot of the times, you know, we see uh, the firearms instructors that we see that are really big names nowadays are, you know, guys who have had years in soft, like, they're aging dudes, like, guys like you, Gunny, like, you know, older guys who've been on the block, you know, and have ran a gun, shot dudes in the face, you know, all that kind of hard-charging stuff. And it's hard for... And I'll be, I'll be realistic, it's hard for someone... It's, it's finding that relevance, because you have guys like, oh, well, what do you know about combat? Like, guys in my age group, they'll go out to... Um, yes, I'm old, I yeah, know. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, have, uh, you'll have those guys that are my age going out to a mic-mic and they're like, oh, well, you know, I, I got my shooting medal. It's called a combat action ribbon. And it's right. like, dude, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Like, just because you've been to combat does not mean you are a great marksman that it who cares like we are teaching skills and we're relating to people uh from all generations on these are the best practices in in order to increase the survivability of yourself the marines around you and increase the lethality of the unit you belong to yep and it it all comes down to killing people yeah at the the end of the day like if i can teach a kid to if if i have to relate to call of duty or fortnite whatever freaking video game these kids are playing these days if that gets a kid to put six rounds in the a zone in two and a half seconds Mm -hmm. then it worked because at the end of the day he's he's leaving that class you know better than he was when he left you you found something to gain their interest and and that's you know that's kind of like the building blocks of instructor foundation and that's one of like the biggest hands is know your audience relatability yeah, and a lot of people like skip over that, and you know they they fail to use the what is what is the modern thing that you know you can best relate to your audience with, and you can get their attention with, and you can keep their attention. Because in the, the day, like if I if I can get your attention, cool. But if I fail to maintain your attention to the class, either by my attitude or like the way I keep talking or what I reference or how I interact with you, you know, then what was the point of getting your attention in the first place? And if I can get your attention, I can keep your attention by making the course fun and interesting. And at the same time, like, you feel like you are legitimately learning and improving something over the duration of the course, you know, that's that's where I want to be. Um, so, Call of Duty. You guys you should play it a little bit. <laughs> anyway. Um, You're also a bit of a, a, a history buff. Huge World War II nerd. Who was it? It was uh, Gunny Jenkins. He was over at MTC. Yeah. Uh, he was like... I think it was him. You, you were in his platoon, weren't you? Or so, I- we worked at OCS together. That's right. Yep. And he went into your room and like you were just geeking out on mm-hmm. like World War Two in color or something along those lines. Oh yeah, I had a I had my uh, my barracks room at the time at OCS was my headboard was covered with like books about World War Two in Vietnam. Um, I had displays. I, I at one point I had an old M1 helmet with a uh, the frog skin camo pattern uh, helmet cover. Like I had I had all kinds of stuff. I even found at one point in the training areas out there. Uh, it was a eight round in block clip from M1 um, that was all rusted over with the round still packed in there. But I, I, I'm assuming over time the actual projectile corroded, but it still had the brass casing still jammed in the M block clip. Oh, nice. And then uh, before I left there, when we were redoing one of the fexes out there, walking the lanes, my buddy stumbled upon a rusted out Mark II uh, pineapple fragmentation grenade. Oh, that's always a good, fun thing to look with, find. No, yeah, with the core not hollowed out, as in it was. Yep, it was a live grenade. So uh, we, whenever I was an instructor at SOI, yeah. like, and we were digging during the basic skills retention exercise, they'd be digging fighting holes, and they'd be like, 
Sergeant, I just found a grenade. <laughs> Leave it alone. Don't touch it. <laughs> Get just out. Put the dirt back on it. Just call it a day. <laughs> We're going to call the Yodi. <laughs> Six hours later. Sorry, Yodi. Uh, yep. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's the norm. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so for any of you guys out there who are also history buffs, um, I will say I, I'm also a partaker of memes. Uh, by the time I'm 30, I'll either be an excellent World War II historian or I will be an expert in. Uh, smoking meats um so i think i already know which path I'm, i've started down uh for any of you guys out there uh, check out dan carlin's podcast on uh hardcore history hardcore history it was uh supernova in the east and it covers and this is interesting because a lot of people when they read world war ii history and especially the campaign in the pacific a lot of people really focus on like the, the marine corps and the army and our campaigns and what we were doing and you know how that experience was for us but nobody and we really delves into the, the Japanese experience of, or the, the civilians and what they were going through. And his podcast is fantastic because he brings in accounts from um, Chinese citizens at the time, uh, Japanese citizens, uh, both you know in the home islands and uh, the main and mainland Japan, and what the climate was like during the build up to the war, um, during the con the conduct of the war. And right around the uh, atom bombs dropping and what, what things were like for the Japanese citizen back home and for the average Japanese soldier, too. And it's interesting. One thing I found out, which was uh, kind of a kind of surprised me, because I, I used to be in the camp of thinking, you know, the kamikaze pilots were all super hard-charging, brainwashed, like, I'm ready to die for the emperor kind of people. In reality, a lot of these people, uh, they hated the Japanese government. They Nothing they did was for the Japanese government. The only thing... They believed was that the Americans, when they landed on Japan, were gonna, you know, murder their family and, you know, do all kinds of horrible things. And they didn't want to see the Japan they knew and the Japan they grew to love. Like a lot of these people were uh, artists, uh, musicians, you know, like liberal arts, you know, the, that type of crowd. And they did what they did in order to preserve their family and the life that they knew back in Japan, the life that they enjoyed. They didn't do anything for the emperor or for the. For the Empire of Japan, none of that. And that was one of the, the weirdest things. Um, just reading about uh, the stewards that would give them their final meal and their final drink before they the, the night before their flight out, you know, to attack American fleets. And these guys were, like, crying, were just drinking their sorrows away. Like, absolutely, like, you know. That's a different mindset. I mean, we don't, yeah. uh, you know, we do everything we have, you know, for my family, mm -hmm. yes. But yeah. it's also for patriotism for yeah. love of country you know and uh, and that was the and that was the climate in japan was just you know japan the japanese military dragged japan into the war because at the time when they were invading china and whatnot the government had almost zero control like the japanese military was completely autonomous and they were invading japan and what could the japanese government do they couldn't say no come back after victory after victory after victory because how would that look you mm -hmm. know the japanese government has no control of their military but the military is victory after victory taking land resources, getting all this stuff back to the mainland, you know, making the Japanese people greater than what they were perceived as, uh, you know, during the War One interwar period where people just saw Japan as another third world nation. There was no way they were going to be able to stand up to, you know, the great nations like Russia or Japan or um, uh, the UK or America. And once, you know, that started happening, the Japanese people were an overwhelming support and the Japanese government had no choice. Wow. And, yeah, stuff like that. So if you're into like super in-depth breakdowns of... Uh, history to that level highly recommend the podcast great for road trips uh, i'm yeah. listening to king of kings right now yeah that's pretty interesting Solid, yeah. um 
kind of going back into the gun thing and oh, yeah, after yeah. talking <laughs> taking a long tangent <laughs> three gun so, right yeah. yeah three gun <laughs> um uh so we're going up to out to the great lakes three gun championship up in wabash indiana uh next weekend uh what have you been focusing on in order to get the team ready for that so the big thing um that kind of a lot of us you know, still run issues with, and you know, everyone tries to follow Horns for. We try to like break down which of those specific ones are we really, really kind of lacking in. Uh, shotguns, quad loading. Quad loading is a is a big deal for our guys, especially for some of the guys that are still using the uh, older style loading ports and the M twos. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't been ported out yet. Yeah, haven't been ported out yet. Uh, and thank God we're we're getting on that finally. Um, PWS has been a great help in that. Uh, but the the, the big thing is uh, quad loading, quad loading on the move. Like, if there's one thing I want my guys to do, it's, like, practice your quad loads and, like, be good at it and be consistent, right? You don't have to be the – if you're not the fastest guy, that's fine. But if I if you're guaranteeing that every time you you, know, you grab four off your caddy, you're getting four on the gun, at, like, on the move, that's good enough for me because um, you can kind of make that time up elsewhere. Uh, and then long range. Uh, long range is a huge deal uh, for me personally and for a lot of the guys. We focus a lot on confirming and guaranteeing our holds are solid because one thing I, I tell them and uh, it's kind of important is we come out and train and I tell them, uh, you know, come out and shoot what you think your holds are and then, you know, shoot to refine them because in a stage or when you go to a match, you know, you can't go up to the stage and, you know, ask the guys, hey, for, in this five minutes, can I can I shoot these targets real quick to confirm my holds? Nope. No. You have, to, you have to know your holds and be confident. Like, you have to know at 100 yards is where I need to hold, at 150, to, and so on and so forth. You need to, like, build that confidence in your head. And, uh, in my, you know, Straylock Pro, like, great apps for that, but in, in like, my, and I'll say limited experience, um, because, again, I've, I've only been shooting now consecutively for about a year. Uh, just seeing physically through the optic and, you know, on the range especially, and, like, burning into my mind what, the reticle looks like when I see a splash on steel at 250, 300, 350, or whatever, you know, that, that instills more confidence in me than an app generating my data. Now, it's great because Straylock, you know. Well, you know, it's kind of like whenever I'm training, right. I'm going to pull out Straylock Pro, right. yeah, and exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look, okay, so based on today's weather and everything, this is what my holds are telling me, and it really hasn't changed at all. Um, it's all pretty much the same data. Nothing, nothing really changes, but it just gives me okay. There, all right, got it. Now I'm gonna go and I'm gonna confirm those holes exactly. and make sure. Yep. That way, whenever I get out to the match, I can easily before I get on stage, I can just kind of quickly memorize where my holds are gonna be for each yard line. You know, sometimes like if it's like nine targets that are gonna be out there, I'll, you know, I'll have a a pad or a paper on my arm. Right with what the distance is where I'm going to be holding or, you know, I just burn it into my head. You know, a lot of the times I don't want to take my eye out of the sight, so I memorize what my holds are going to be and I just go out there. But a lot of it comes down to training and being familiar with the the weapon system and the optic that you're using. Confidence. Confidence Mm -hmm. is like the the biggest thing. And that's that's one thing that kind of drives me a little bit, especially like, you know, when planning for a stage is – you see it a lot of times. I think Go Fast Don't Suck actually made a meme about this, but you see so many guys who who see, you know, Captain Scott, for example, shoot a stage a certain way, and he smokes, he crushes that stage, you mm-hmm. know, beating open times, shooting tack-offs. Yep. And you see all these guys, something like, 
that that was that was a really good stage play. Like I, I'm gonna do that, right? But, but then they screw it up. But they they don't have the same confidence with a pistol like you know Captain Scott does. They're shooting outside of their comfort zone. They're shooting outside their comfort zone, and they're building. They're trying to instill confidence in themselves that they they hadn't done in training. Mm-hmm. And Staff Sergeant Goking and I, you know, we had a long discussion about it because he's he's big on the training aspect too, like the mental game. Yeah. The mental game is huge, uh, and a lot of people I think overlook it. You know, people think like I have the best guns and gear. I have, you know, I put thousands of rounds through my gun. I'm gonna go out there and crush it. And they get to the stage and they're like, mm, you know, I don't know about that one. Or I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. And when they come up to the plate, you know, they're still in their mind like second guessing their stage plan, second guessing their holds, and that ruins them. Mm-hmm. You know, because you could have the the be- like you could have a razor one to ten. You know, all, all this nice stuff. But if your mind isn't there and like telling yourself like I'm gonna shoot this, and I know that round is gonna connect. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. connect the first round. I know what I need to do to follow up to and fall fast to get that second hit, or you know whatever it might be. Um, guys come up there and it, it just kind of like all goes away, and everyone and we all know like once that first like portion of the stage, that first array kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. They peter you know, out, and it's it, like everything just everything train wrecks. A series of compounding failures. You know? Yep. And uh, like. Uh, I think the biggest thing, and I wasn't always like this, and a lot of it comes down to training. A lot of it comes down to being comfortable around with the guys you are, but you can't have any negatives going into a match. Like, clear that shit out of your head. Like, focus on the positives. Hey, dude, you're at a match. Like, you're getting paid to do this. Or you're out here having fun with a bunch of your friends. doesn't matter. Um, You know, be happy that you're out here. Like, that's what it comes down to. Um, be happy you have the ammo to train. Um, like we all, I think every every single one of us, we're we're just extremely grateful for the experience that we we have here. But we've all worked really damn hard oh, to yeah. get where we are. And it, it's that's a, you know, sometimes even when I don't perform to my to my best, like uh, middle of this year, right? Like that long range stage absolutely went to you know, well, hell in hell in a handbasket because when I was something I I screwed up. And, you know, I realized it when we got back and I could diagnose it, you know, but like I cranked my windage dial to the, you know, it was like, uh, it's like five or six clicks, right? Mm-hmm. When I was tightening down, uh, the zero stops and so I didn't pick up and the, the long range stage with the crap. But at the end of the day, like I was out there for free mm-hmm. getting paid to shoot this match. And that's just one thing that I screw up that I can now take back and like realize like, Hey, maybe I shouldn't do that. Like, one thing, here's one thing, like, and I'll say this Marine Corps-wide, I don't care. Marine Corps has had a series of zero-defect mentalities, and uh, I think that's dangerous. Oh, it is. Uh, Because, like, if you're training, if if you're out here doing this type of stuff, like, training is the time to screw up. Absolutely. Um, Even here at the matches, this is just training for us to get out there and learn different techniques to to train the rest of the Marines in the Marine Corps. Um, so you learn from a series of mistakes. You will learn more from a series of mistakes and you will learn more from other people's series of mistakes. And as long as you remember that and figure out what you can do to fix that, you're going to be successful. Yep. That's, that's, that's uh, a big, a big deal right now is just risk averse training. And a lot of people don't realize that if I execute a mediocre plan perfectly, just because it's safe. It's still a mediocre plan. It's still a mediocre plan, and in reality, it's not going to hold up to nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just not. And same thing goes with training. If I set up a super basic drill 
or if I'm just practicing something super basic or super easy and I can crush it a hundred times, it doesn't matter because I could grab a PFC and tell him like, Hey, shoot this, you know, 20 inch piece of steel at a hundred yards and you know, three seconds. And he could probably do it in the standing. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't, doesn't mean he's a good shot if he does it in like a second or two seconds. No, it just means he executed the, he met the stand, the mediocre standard a hundred percent. Yep. And now by make that, but it, and you see where I'm going with this, but uh, risk-averse training is just uh, a big pet peeve of mine. I, I I am one to try and, like, kind of push. Push the envelope to where push. it's... I'm the same way, you know. Um, if I have machine guns at a support by fire, now and I have a maneuver, and I have a maneuver element uh, hitting the objective, I want to push those machine guns to fire as long as I can yep. getting my Marines that are pushing to the objective as close to the objective as fire before I cut the machine yep. guns off. And the, and you have to do that in training. That way people gain the same confidence. Exactly. Um, or because combat, um, that's, that's not time to play those games. Yeah, like, combat is not very friendly to risk averse training. No. And you know, you know, you know that well better than I do for anyone ask you're wondering, I'm a massive uh, Tomb U baby, so Gunny here obviously has a lot more experience in that regard. But there are some things that you just accept as fact because it has been set in stone through history and doctrine. Risk-averse training will do you... It doesn't do you any favors. It does no good. It does mm-hmm. no good. At the end of the day, it's just not it. So, I mean, with Gunny here as my witness, I'm agreeing with him. We're both, <laughs> we're both on the understanding that you should push your machine guns to the absolute limit of the MSL before you call them off. <laughs> Alright, moving on. What's the MSL? Uh, minimum safety line. Okay. Or mi- minimum safety s- line, limit line. Uh, it, it, it changes who he talks to. In reality, it, it all means the same thing. Don't get your panties in a twist. <laughs> Half the civilians that are going to be listening to this aren't going to no know idea. what we're talking about. <laughs> it's just how close you can safely, effectively utilize your machine guns based on their cone of fire and their actual beaten zone when it hits the ground by the time it reaches their target. Okay, now that we got that defined. All right. <laughs> um, so, obviously, next week we're going to Great Lakes. Um, what is What match are you most looking forward to this season? Because we got a couple. We're, we're going to RO, the Pro-Am match uh, in September. And then in October, we're going to Memorial 3-Gun. And then in November, we're going to shoot Fort Benning multi-gun. Yep, and... I don't want to speak too soon, but I think you might already know my answer. Mm-hmm. Um, Memorial last year was an absolute blast, and you kind of you know yeah I, I he kinda, DQ'd at that I, match. I, yeah, I bombed it the, the the night of the second day. All right, guys, I got the majority of the match out of the way. Please cut me some slack. But no, in all honesty, like there was a lot of fun stages I got to shoot. Um, and this year they're gonna have a plane out there where we're gonna be shooting <sighs> off of a plane. I am so ready to do some tubular assaulting. You have no idea. Uh, but yeah, that's probably one of the biggest I'm looking forward to. Just just knowing that the the type of match they host um, and the reasons why they do it. Uh, and Eric Eric is a great great uh, member of that community um, and the Memorial Three Gun family. Uh, I love seeing every match. He's my uh, hidden soulmate for anyone out there wondering. Um, Columba has a bromance with him. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. I don't want to speak too soon though because I I'm still looking forward to Wisconsin or uh, Indiana. Um, I'm still looking forward to the pro am, especially looking forward to staffing it. That'll be my first uh, major match I've staffed. We staffed Mid Atlantic and I staffed hard as hell, but um, I think pro am will be like a 
much bigger show out, and I'm looking forward to meeting all the people that we're bound to meet there. Um, and then Fort Benning, I know I saw a post on Instagram from uh, Nate Staskowitz about some of the target ideas they have, and uh, my brain hurt a little bit, but it's going to be exciting. I didn't see that yet. Uh, does so, a lot of it have to do with height over bore? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that. Yeah, it's a, we, it's. we were talking to him about that whenever we were out at uh, the Tri Gun match. Oh, yeah. He was like, "Hey, what kind of targets would you guys like to see out there?" And we were like, "Height over bore." Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a it's a it's a clear or a open face ipsic in the back, and it has a no shoot sandwich right over it, a full no shoot, and then it's got little slots cut out for you to shoot in between the no shoot or shoot through the no shoot into the actual open paper exposed maybe but it's like a little two inch or two by four square like three of them on each target it's like one round each he was, he was toying with the, the possibility of and i'm a fan because i know at norick i crushed those clays that were sandwiched in that no shoot so bring it on buddy <laughs> but yeah i just i, I just want to be able to shoot a cruiser weapon there but obviously they can't do that look if they can't satisfy my 31 needs then say i'm not looking forward to the match i will shoot out of necessity but if there's no 249 well i'm sorry 240 or higher i might be slightly disappointed i'm just kidding uh yeah I, it's it's definitely a match i'm looking forward to most because i know the guys have shot it before uh last year i think before mid season started we we're supposed to shoot it and then the whole covid thing popped up kind of yep. kept us from going but i'm definitely looking forward to this year um i also have some friends down at fort benning so i'll see you guys soon if you're listening uh yeah What's uh, today? What uh, which match have you, have you had the most fun at? You're putting the spot in. Well, like this season. This, well, does the mid season also count? Sure. Right, I'll say hard as hell. Okay. Hard as hell was uh was very physically challenging as far as natural terrain goes. I mean, one stage I was hauling a mock up of a 1917 water cooled 30 cal. While shooting my pistol with one hand, and I have never felt more in tune with John Basson in my entire life than that one stage. <laughs> and I think that one stage alone takes the cake, because that was pretty cool. Because I was shooting like six-inch pie plates at like twenty-five or thirty meters while walking uphill with a thirty cal on my shoulder. Like, I can't get any more. I, that's the peak of of Marine Corps shooting team badassery. I will say this for those who don't know who John Bastlone is. Oh, granted, I know all the Marines <laughs> will know this, but for you civilians who have never heard of John Bastlone, look him up. Watch the Pacific, uh, the episode in the Pacific where you see him just mowing down a bunch of Japanese, you know, having that machine gun just resting on his forearm, yeah. burning a, a scar in his arm. Uh, it's an instant hard on. Yeah, Grandpappy, all machine gunners in the Marine Corps. Mm hmm. Um, other than that, uh,. Is there anything that you'd like to leave uh, leave the listeners with? Oh man, you know I'm I'm a young guy, so I know there's a lot of people out there who are well than I am. Um, but there's one thing I can give you guys as a young guy, as an infantry marine, um, as a three gun competitor instructor. Uh, speed, surprise, and violence of action will always win the day. I can move fast. I can shoot fast. And that's all you need to do to kill. Be lethal. All right. Well, thank you for listening. And if you have any questions for us, uh, feel free to reach out. We'll have everything listed in the description. Other than that, have a great day. See you guys.